Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad y'all are here. Welcome to uh, Sunday morning in Adult Sunday School. Um, last week, as y'all will recall, whoever was here, we were in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And um, Jared pointed out last week that there's a marked difference in chapter 11 in the way that David is portrayed. Uh, it, it's frankly a rather unsettling chapter if, when you think about it. Um, up to this point, you know, David's been the good guy. Right? All throughout 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we've gotten used to this idea that we like David. He, he's a good guy. Um, often throughout the narrative so far, the author has used contrasts. He's highlighted the differences between the different characters. And in those contrasts, it's usually David on the good side. Right? You know, there's evil King Saul and there's righteous King David. We're used to that sort of narrative. But in chapter 11, we, we get a different taste of David. We get the, the evil David, right? Um, it's interesting, even in 1 Samuel 18, uh, when King Saul is trying to kill David and get rid of David, one of the techniques that Saul tries to employ is he sends David off to war with the Philistines in hopes that David will die. And in chapter 11, last week of 2 Samuel, we see that that's the same technique that David used, except David was even more scheming than Saul was, and so... We almost have this contrast here between David and Saul, and David's worse. Um, in chapter 11, we obviously we saw other contrasts with David. We saw David contrasted with Joab. Joab has been a not very well-portrayed person so far. We don't like Joab thus far, but yet he comes across better than David in chapter 11 because Joab is off dutifully doing what he's supposed to do, and Saul, I'm sorry, David is back home not doing what he's supposed to do. Um, obviously, we see David contrasted with Uriah. Um, David is this sinful, scheming person, and Uriah is a humble, dutiful servant. So, like I said, chapter 11 is unsettling. It leaves us feeling kind of strange. And, um, you know, we've, we've got this man after God's own heart, and we're told the, the last verse of chapter 11 is probably the most unsettling. It says that the Lord was displeased with David. I mean, we know that God would be displeased with sin. That's not surprising to us. But what is surprising, what is unsettling, is that he's displeased with David. So that's where we come to with chapter 12. So I'm going to read chapter 12 now. Um, I'm going to start with the last part of chapter 11, just because, again, that sets up what's happening in chapter 12. But um, here's 2 Samuel uh, 11b on through chapter 12. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord... And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by, David, the, by, I'm sorry, by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray and then we'll get going here. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for bringing us here this morning that we might consider it and um, reason through it together. Lord, we thank you that um, even as we consider an unsettling passage like this and, and are saddened by the sin that we see, we thank you that there is grace for us to see in this. We pray that we would, um, we would see our sin, we would see the greatness of our offense against you, but more than that, we would see the greatness of your grace towards us and um, the way that you have set aside our sin um, by placing it on Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of us, all of us from time to time are witnesses of other people being disciplined. Um, I was the third of eight children, so growing up I got to witness a lot of discipline. And truth be told, most of it was against me, so I was really more receiving the discipline, but that's maybe a different story. My parents were always pretty good about um, taking us into their room to mete out the discipline. So we had a little bit of privacy, and 
Um, however, the room, their room is in um, above the basement, and the room that's directly above is the schoolroom where we've spent a lot of time. And my bedroom's also in the basement. It was in the basement. So we actually often could hear what was happening up in the room of discipline. Now, it was pretty standard and predictable what discipline you were going to get. Most of the time, it would be three spankings with a wooden spoon on a exposed posterior. And those of us in the audience downstairs would sometimes hear crying from upstairs as the guilty party received his or her punishment. Sometimes we might also hear the murmur of our parents' voice as they were talking to us or praying with us when the discipline was over. This one time, I remember my little brother decided that he was going to be clever and try to dodge at the last second. And I heard my mom's voice say, all right, well, that's four. Um, None of us tried that trick again. Or how about this one? Um, Likely most of us have been driving down the road and we see a car pulled over on the side of the road with a police car behind it and there's a police officer standing by the window giving the person a ticket. How do you feel when you see someone else being disciplined? What goes through your mind? Whew, I'm glad that's not me. Or, dang, that person was a real idiot to do that. Ouch, that must not be fun. Watching someone else get disciplined typically makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? And I think it's probably because as we see someone else's wrongdoing exposed and punished, we can't help but be made aware of our own propensity to do wrong. You drive past a car pulled over with a cop sitting behind it with lights, what's the first thing you usually do? You check your mirror to make sure there's no one pulling you over too, right? You know it could just as easily have been you getting pulled over for speeding. And so as we read through chapter 12, it's intensely uncomfortable for us because we can see the fallout of David's sin. And frankly, the more articles I read or sermons I listened to preparing for this, the more uncomfortable I got. And so my goal would be that for all of you, by the time we're done here, you'll be uncomfortable too. Um, But the good news is that the gospel doesn't leave us uncomfortable. In this passage, uh, this passage is full of grace and mercy of God. And so I think as we are made uncomfortable by seeing sin exposed and being aware of our own sin, we have to also bask in the warmth and reassurance um, that of, of our forgiveness in, in God. So as we break down chapter 12, um, I was kind of hoping Kyle would be in here because I was going to show off a little bit. Chapter 12, we've got here confrontation, confession, consequences, and a conclusion. So y'all can tell him that I've been learning from him about how to break these things down. First, we have the confrontation from Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Verse 1. And that word send was used 12 different times in chapter 11. David was sending, Bathsheba was sending, um, Joab was sending. There were all these people sending, all these sins happening, but none of it was being, there's no mention of the Lord throughout all of chapter 11. Only at the last chapter 11 that I read do we hear anything about the Lord. And yet, chapter 12 starts out with the Lord sending Nathan. Yahweh is taking action and indeed is taking over the narrative here. And this is the first place we see God's amazing grace to David, is sending Nathan to him. Um, The text doesn't tell us what's been going on in David's heart since he had Uriah killed. Uh, We know Bathsheba has gone through the pregnancy, so it's been, you know, we we know that he got her pregnant, he then killed Uriah, that would have taken a little bit of time, but then now she's gone through and she's delivered the baby, so it's maybe eight months or so since Uriah was killed, give or take. Um, What we do know is that David needs to be he still needs to be jolted out of his spiritual slumber because we haven't seen anything about repentance from him yet. 
And uh, Dale Davis says that these verses show us that grace pursues and exposes the sinner in his sin. They teach us that Yahweh will not allow his servants to remain comfortable in sin, but will ruthlessly expose his sin lest he settle down in it. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, but Yahweh will come after you. What immense and genuine comfort every servant of Christ should find in the first six words of this chapter. Not that God's pursuing grace is enjoyable, but what if grace did not pursue? What if Yahweh abandoned us when we succeeded at sin? Praise God, he didn't abandon David. And he sends, he sends Nathan, and we can see that Nathan sets a good example for um, all of us for what it looks like to, to confront a brother or sister in sin. Galatians 6.1 says, says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Nathan in this. He's strategic about how he goes to David. Um, he uses a parable. Of course, he doesn't tell David it's a parable. He just goes to him and says, I've got a story to tell you. And you can, right? You know, he's on his throne. He, you know, someone comes to him with a problem. I'm sure this happened all the time, but he was being asked to judge different situations between people. So he rolls up his sleeves. All right, tell me what happened. Let me give a ruling on it. Um, Nathan is really clever. Think about the, the analogy that he uses of a sheep. So what was David when he was a kid? He was a shepherd, right? So sheep are near and dear to his heart. Um, Nathan also uses, there's the same wording used as far as, um, you know, David in chapter 11, David took Bathsheba. In chapter 12, the rich man took the poor man's sheep. So there's, there's some similar language being used there. But um, David, when he hears this story from Nathan, identifies the injustice of what's happened. He applies Exodus 22.1 when he says that the rich man should restore the lamb fourfold since that's what the law required. It's interesting also how David gets not at so much the, or he gets at the practical issue of the sheep needing to be repaid, but he also gets to the heart issue of the rich man. He says that he has no pity. So in just a few words, Nathan manages to get David to identify the sin, identify the, the wrong that was done. He identifies the heart issue that was behind the wrong that was done. And he also identifies the punishment. For and in all aspects, he's talking about himself. Alexander White says that Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that he even had a sword. And Nathan then delivers those condemning words in a crushingly efficient manner. You are the man. Those are haunting words, aren't they? You are the man. Again, let's picture David. He's up there again. He's up on his throne. He's ready to deliver the judgment for this. He's, He's got his judge hat on, right? And he's, he's being analytical. He's thinking through what's, what's happened. He's considering it. And, and now he's mad. Played to his uh, shepherding, protecting um, nature that, that we've seen so often in, in the book so far. So he's, he's riled up. He's mad. And then he hears those words, you are the man. You can just imagine you know, that the blood drains from his face. That, that fire in his eyes is suddenly replaced by fear, dread, and shame. Like I said, this this text makes you uncomfortable, and this is probably the height of it, right? No doubt David just wants to hide, and I don't know, we as readers almost want to hide too because we can just sense the the uncomfortableness of what's going on here. But Nathan doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's not telling David just, hey, your sin's been found out. No, he goes deeper and expounds on the depth of that sin. He recounts God's covenant faithfulness to David. He anointed him king over Israel. He delivered 
Uh, when David came to power, he apparently acquired possession of all that was Saul's, including his house and wives. Now, just as a quick aside, that comment there is not meant to tell us that it's okay David had multiple wives. Rather, the point is that David had everything he needed. He had been so well provided for that there was no reason, no need for him to take anything from anyone else, much less their wife. Nathan's condemning monologue comes to a head in verse 9 when he gets to the heart of the matter and asks, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Again, there's this progression of his rebuke. God was faithful in providing for you. In your heart, you despise the Lord. And the result of you despising the Lord is that now you've done this horrible sin. The source and the cause of his sin was the fact that he had despised the Lord. Therefore, the primary issue here has to do with David's attitude and posture towards the Lord. But I wonder, do we ever classify our sin as despising the Lord? No, we say, well, no, I made a mistake, or that was a lapse in judgment. Saying we despise the Lord just sounds awful, and it is awful, but that's not how we like to think of ourselves. That's not how we like to think of our sin. But Nathan here makes it very clear that all sin is despising the Lord. And Nathan then keeps on going, and he articulates for David what the sin was. There's no escape for David or something. You know, Nathan doesn't just say, you despise the Lord, you did a terrible thing. He says, you despise the Lord, and now let me tell you about what you did. He uses Uriah's name multiple times. He mentions the fact that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife multiple times to just keep driving home that point to David. Here's what you've done. Here's what you've done. And as if Nathan's words haven't been hard enough to listen to thus far, as he's laid bare the wickedness and shame of David's sin, he also then delivers God's judgment. The sword will never depart from David's house. The Lord will raise up evil against David out of his own house. The Lord will take David's wives and give them to his neighbor. David did his sin in private, but his judgment is going to be made public. To read the words of condemnation and judgment, it's, it, it's just heartbreaking. Because of all the, the, the hope that we've placed in David thus far, and yet we're reading this, this judgment that's going to befall him this, because of his horrible sin. You can't help but, but leave, you know, as you read these words of rebuke and judgment, you, you, you feel hopeless. You feel foreboding, Right? Which brings us then to David's confession. Quiet. As soon as Nathan started talking, David, who was all riled up and ready to go and judge this evil rich man, David has gone quiet suddenly. Um, if you're like me, and, and well, frankly, I hope you're not, uh, you'd have been jumping up and down with some sort of a response to what Nathan was saying, right? Well, I might have tried to create context for what I did. It sort of explains why it made sense. Or um, here's some, some excuses to justify what I did. I might have even attempted to say that, well, from a severity perspective, relatively speaking, this wasn't as bad as what it could have been. Um, or or what, I, what I probably would have done personally is I would have jumped in and just, okay, I get it, I get it. I screwed up. You don't have to keep talking anymore. Um, I would say that's probably myself. And, um, you know, unfortunately, my wife, Vanessa, could tell you all that, that I think sometimes when, um, when I have sinned against her, I then compound the sin by trying to get it to cut her off and not let her explain to me exactly how it is that I've hurt her. I, I don't want to hear it because it, it makes me too ashamed. And uh, David doesn't do that here. John Calvin says that by keeping David, I'm sorry, by keeping quiet, David gave the prophet liberty to condemn him as, he, as freely as he wished. This is another way that we see God in the fact that um, Nathan not only confronts his sin, but he itemizes it out for him. He explains it. 
If we don't understand the seriousness of our sin, then we can't appreciate how amazing God's grace is in forgiving us when we repent. God's grace consists in his informing us of his fury. Sometimes we try to declaw grace, but grace is not just niceness. Another quote from Calvin says it well, There's nothing better than when God sends us messengers of his wrath, for they can make us feel his mercy and cease to enjoy our sins, so that we might then apprehend his distance and our consciences torment us to the extent of humbling us to pardon and remission in him until he has accepted us. When David does finally speak, it is short and sweet. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, one might be tempted to think we should have said more, right? After all, it's a pretty heinous thing that he's just done. Why does he just give us this short little sentence? And yet, um, I think the simplicity of what he says shows that the severity of what he has done actually has penetrated to his heart. Yes, he had sinned against others and wronged them, but at the end of the day, the primary and overarching offense was against God, and he's come to realize that. Truth be told, from a personality perspective, I kind of like the succinctness of what he says. Just get to the heart of it and just the facts tell us what you did. Um, But I realize that a just the facts approach to life doesn't always allow for the expression of emotion or depth of feeling. Um, David says what he says, but how do we know that he has truly grasped the depth of his sin? Well, we know because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write Psalm 51 so that we can get a little peek behind the curtain of what he means when he says, I have sinned against the Lord. So if y'all want to turn there with me, I'm just going to read Psalm 51 real quick um, because I think it again, helps us understand where David's heart is as he's saying, I have sinned against the Lord. So Psalm 51, we're familiar with this, but it's just, it's, it's good to read. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me, with, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I don't know about you, but I would say that based on um, David's response to Nathan, both as recorded in 2 Samuel 12 and in Psalm 51, we can safely interpret that his repentance was genuine. He realizes that he has sinned and that he is under the Lord's judgment and justly deserving of the, de- of the death and fourfold restoration sentence that he had passed on this imaginary rich man. It is also, I think, here reassuring for us to see David back on the correct side of a compare and contrast in these books. You may remember back in 1 Samuel 15, 
when the prophet Samuel rebukes Saul for his sin, and his reaction there is nothing like what we see from David. So, some degree to which David is behaving the way he's supposed to, the way we expect him to. And for as horrific and heartbreaking, all around unsettling as Nathan's rebuke of David has been, the simplicity of Nathan's words in verse 14 are so comforting, aren't they? He says, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Could there be anything more reassuring than that? You will not get the death that you deserve. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we truly believe that God will forgive us if we earnestly and wholeheartedly repent of our sins? Or are we sometimes tempted to think that our sins are too much? Brothers and sisters, the mercy and grace of God are on full display here. We repent. I mean, that's the amazing truth of the gospel, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. The gospel is not the gospel. We don't get what our sin deserves when we confess and turn to the Lord in faith as David does here. It's truly phenomenal, and I don't think we, should, we, we can't blow past that line by Nathan here. I think that short sentence from him is really the main point of this chapter. Though each of our sins is a heinous offense to the Lord, and though, as we're going to discuss next, there are still temporal consequences of our sin, when we turn in faith and repentance to the Lord, we have the sweet assurance that we are forgiven and that we will not die but have everlasting life. Let's make sure we don't lose sight of that. And it, it's hard sometimes even to lose sight of that when we deal with the, the sorrow in this life of consequences. Consequences of his sin. Even as he's pronouncing to David that he will not die for his sins, Nathan still pronounces a tragic judgment that the son conceived out of David's adultery will die. The child gets sick, we, we see there, and David goes into a full-scale lamentation, mourning, supplication before the Lord. He's fasting. He's lying on the ground praying. He's not consolable by anybody. And his servants are all kind of standing off to the side, a little worried about him. They're concerned for him because he won't eat and because he's so distraught. And so much so that when the child actually does die, they're, they're not quite sure what to do if they tell him and if he finds out the child is dead. Um, but he... He you know, perceives that the child is dead, and, and they say, yeah, the child is dead. And he surprises them with what he does next because he gets up, cleans himself up, takes a bath, anoints himself, goes to the house of the Lord and worships, and he goes back to his house and he eats. And, you, and again, you can sort of picture yourself with one of these servants. Like, what? Exactly. Um, what is, what's, he, what's going on here? What gives? And so they, they say that to him. They, the servants say, you know, what? what are you doing here? Why are you behaving this way? And David explains that, well, before the child was dead, there was still hope that he might live. So David pleaded with the Lord, but now that the child is dead, there's nothing more to plead for. It's, it's done. Um, and again, this is, this is a tough, tough story for us to hear. The idea of a child dying. This, this idea, it seems so unfair for this child to suffer because of his father's sin. And I think it's okay for us to say, yeah, it is unfair. Um, but sadly, that's the reality of a fallen world, that one person's misdeeds can have a detrimental effect on someone else. And, and we see here the tragedy of it. Um, Richard Phillips reasons through this from a covenantal perspective. 
that we're, we are all impacted and bound covenantally to our parents. Sometimes that's to our benefit to be connected to them. Sometimes it's, it's not a good thing to be connected to one's parents, but we are covenantally bound to them. Um, we affirm this as we place the covenant sign of baptism on our children. We're not saving them by doing that, but we are. one of the things we're affirming is that there is a blessing, there's a covenantal blessing to being the child of a believer. And sadly, there can be covenantal curses that our children can experience too. Um, and as David says in Psalm 51, we know that we were all born in sin because first sin. We're bound covenantally back to our first parents. And so I guess as we think through it, it's, it's troubling that, or I think we can understand and we can accept the fact that, all right, well, maybe there can be detrimental effects that we have because of our parents and, and it's okay for that to be bad. But I think it's, it's just the death part of it that makes us uncomfortable, right? Um, and again, it's, there, there's nothing to say, but it is tragic. And um, it just shows how far-reaching the effects of sin can be. Um, as Derek Thomas says, if you throw a stone into a lake, you can go back in and retrieve the stone, but you can't stop the ripples that have been started. So it is with our sin. There's forgiveness when we repent, but that doesn't mean that the ripples can be stopped. And at the same time, though, I think we need to be careful here to not attribute all suffering that we experience in this life to be punishment for a specific sin. If one of our children gets sick and dies, for instance, or any other types of suffering that we go through, we, we don't have to automatically, we should not automatically assume that it is because of something specific or particular that we've done. Remember in um, John 9, the story where Jesus encounters a man who's blind from birth, and he's asked by his disciples, so is this guy blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. Most often, our suffering is not because of a particular sin, but rather it's a byproduct of the fact that sin is in the world generally and all of the brokenness that sin brings. God uses it for his glory, praise him, but again, this is not something specific we can always say about our suffering. Now, there are times when we can tell that we're suffering the consequences of our sins, and we all know that. We can, we can sense that when something's happening specifically because of what we've done, and in those situations, we should repent. Um, but we need not burden ourselves with trying to figure out what sin we're being punished for when we encounter suffering. And how, how then do we understand David as we, we see David's response here? How do we understand his actions? Is he just trying to avoid the consequences of his sin? You know, is he saying, okay, yep, I've been found out, but I really don't want to have to deal with the consequences here. Um, to some extent, yeah, he is. And, and I think that's, again, I think it's okay. Nobody likes consequences, so I think it's okay for him to be saying, I don't want to suffer the consequences of my sins. Um, understands the consciousness of our Lord in his response here. Um, another quote I found is that, no matter how inevitable some future eventuality may seem, we are never prohibited from praying that the Lord would arrest it and return a blessing. David here, though, is not pleading with God based on anything other than the fact that he knows the Lord is rich in mercy. He is not acting as if his sin didn't matter and therefore God should not punish him. He's not saying, I don't deserve this. Rather, he is acting out of his knowledge that one of God's immutable attributes is that he is gracious. We can see that David properly understands that God's grace is given based solely on God's sovereign will and the fact that he is not upset with God when the child dies. You know, if, if he thought it was unjust for that to happen, he would be, we'd see anger from him. But that's not what we see from David. He just says that, well, he, because he knows that the Lord is rich in mercy and grace, he prays. But nothing that he says indicates that, he's, that anything has changed about his belief in God's grace when God's answer to his lament and his prayer is no. 
it has sort of a similar feel to it when, when Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We can see what David does after he cleans himself up. Um, he goes and he worships in the house of the Lord. It's not like David was suddenly okay with his son dying and wasn't sad anymore. We see in verse 24 that David is comforting Bathsheba, so one must assume that it's a mutual comfort. Rather, David knows that when he is sad, the one to whom he must turn is the Lord, and so he goes to the house of the Lord to worship. That is where he will find comfort for his soul. And so it should be for us, too. When we are grieving, even, even grieving over the consequences of our sin, we should turn to the Lord for comfort. He lovingly disciplines his children, but he also stands ready to comfort us when we seek his face in faith. Again, parents in that um, analogy of when I was being disciplined, that you know, I'd get spanked and I would cry and it hurt, and immediately what I would do is I'd sit in their lap and they'd hug me, and they'd comfort me and they'd reassure me. And that's where David looks for his comfort, even after he has received the punishment that he deserves. And again, it's just sad. Um, and we read about these this consequences of David's sin, and um, we read about just this one consequence in chapter 12, and, and sadly, really, the rest of the book, the rest of the narrative of David's life is going to be overshadowed by the judgment that he's receiving here, and we see that play out. Um, you know, he had said that the rich man deserved to repay fourfold for the little lamb that he had stolen, and, and David is going to have four sons die. His son Amnon is coming up. On, he's going to die. Absalom's going to die. Adonijah's going to die. So there's fourfold re- repayment for his sin. Um, in addition, we see that as Nathan prophesied, very publicly on the rooftop. It might even be the same rooftop that David was walking on when he looked down and saw Bathsheba. So the whole rest of the narrative of David's life is overshadowed by this, and yet David's alive. Um, David has not died as he deserved. And even in this, these consequences that David receives, there is, there's grace. As I said, David is alive, but the grace is also that, that God... Um, helped David to understand the depth and severity of his sin. So it is with us. Our consequences help us to understand the depth and severity of our sin, and our consequences also help to dissuade us from sinning any further, from future sin. And so then we have the conclusion of this chapter. Um, Despite David's sin and faithlessness towards God, we see at the end of the chapter that God is still faithful to him. David and Bathsheba have another son. It is Solomon, and this is the son through whom in accordance with the promises that he made in chapter 7. The narrative then ends where chapter 11 began, with the military campaign against the Ammonites. We've almost forgotten that's happening, right? But chapter 11 started out with, at the time of year when kings go off to war, David stayed home. And Joab then goes and starts fighting this war against the Ammonites. And now we get to the end of chapter 12, and we see that this, this city of Rabbah that's been besieged since the beginning of chapter 11, well, now it's been taken. And you kind of feel like, well, I almost forgot that was even going on because so much has happened. You've had this, this tragedy of David's sin. You've had the, the child that then is born, the child that dies. He's had another child. So it's been quite a, amount of, a long amount of time here. But yet um, we also sort of think it, you would almost not be surprised as you read this to say, all right, well, at this point, after all David's done, what's going to happen to Israel? Well, they're going to lose the battle, right? Because that's what... That's what this deserves. Um, we've seen that in other narratives in the Bible where the sin of the, of the people, particularly even the sin of the leader, 
is judged by God and the, and the whole country suffers for it. And yet, that wasn't God's plan here. Um, Richard Phillips says that God's plans for grace and glory on his people are not based on our temporal and fleeting performance or our deserving of his pleasure. God's blessing is according to his sovereign will and purpose, and he is a God of grace. If God's grace on us were based on our perfect obedience to him, then we would never experience his grace, since everything we do is by sin. We ought never to presume upon his grace, and yet 